Welcome back to The Word is Resistance, a podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? What wisdom is there for us as white Christians in these troubled, violent times of pandemics and racial capitalism and the beauty of resistance? I'm Reverend Sarah Howell Miller. My pronouns are she or they. I'm a United Methodist minister, and I live in what is currently known as Winston-Salem, North Carolina, on the ancestral lands of the Tutelo, Okanichi, and Kiawe peoples. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians. White Christians talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. The epistle lesson for this third Sunday after Epiphany is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10-18. through 18. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be knit together in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been made clear to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Last week, my colleague, Reverend Courtney Jones, the associate pastor at our church, she preached uh, where we served together, and she lifted up a lesser-known civil rights figure alongside Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and that was the Reverend Dr. Prathia Hall. Hall was a leader in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, a respected scholar, later a Baptist preacher. And Courtney shared with us the fact that the phrase, I have a dream, now famously attributed to Dr. King, well, that was first uttered by Prathia Hall. Hall had agreed to a request from King for him to use it after he heard her say say it during a prayer. 
She never attempted to take credit, not wanting to undermine the way that phrase so shaped King's legacy. In fact, the author of a book about Prathia Hall points out that the fact that King asked Hall's permission to use the phrase showed that he considered her his equal as a preaching peer. In fact, King once commented, Prathia Hall is one of the platform speakers I would prefer not to follow. Despite these and other amazing credentials, when Hall went before her ordination committee in 1977, she found herself facing an obstacle, that of her gender, or rather how people of her gender were often treated by the institution of the church. The first time her ordination was voted on, it passed. But then a group of men who had not been part of the first vote gathered another meeting and called the question again. This time the vote was tied, and eventually the motion was tabled in the interest of unity. Now, unity is one of those Christian-y words that tends to be accepted as universally positive, but it doesn't take much time looking at things from an anti-racist, anti-oppression lens to see that the value of unity has been used to cover all manner of sins. Unity in one area often tempts people to deepen division in others, and so often this trends in favor of institutional and systemic power. Consider the ways white women have historically given up opportunities for solidarity with women of color for the sake of preserving unity among white folks. Or how my own denomination, the United Methodist Church, continues to sacrifice queer and trans folks on the altar of denominational unity. Or how the men, considering Prathia Hall's ordination, were ready to dismiss her calling and experience in favor of unity among themselves. Now, there are complexities in the Prathia Hall example that she addressed in her lifetime related to questions of racial unity at the intersections of class, gender, and politics. And those issues are not mine to speak to as a white woman. I note them here simply to acknowledge their existence. But as we turn to Paul's words to the church at Corinth, it's important to keep in mind that unity, which might sound simple and straightforward, is hardly ever so. And in fact, it can tempt us to greater, more grievous division in the name of avoiding it. As I read Paul's admonition to let there be no divisions among you, I can't help but wonder about his eschatology. Paul probably thought that the second coming was imminent, that the looming end of all things, you know, that certainly influenced his theology. Perhaps he thought the church could keep it together until Jesus came back, which would be any day now. Surely he couldn't have expected human beings to have no divisions for thousands of years into the future. Of course, Paul lived during a time of political unity, the footnotes to which would have been very familiar to his people. The phrase Pax Romana refers to roughly 200 years when the Roman Empire was at peace. The Pax Romana was considered a golden age of relative order and stability for Rome. Of course, peace for Rome meant oppression for the people whose lands the empire occupied. It meant swift and violent repression of any dissidents. See the crucifixion of Christ himself. And passages like this one are often misused to silence dissenting people and groups who are accused of causing divisions when they're really just revealing ongoing injustice. Prathia Hall was considered by some to be divisive because her mere existence shone a light on sexism within her community. Queer clergy in my tradition are accused of threatening unity for simply being themselves in a system bent on erasing or silencing them. 
Black, Indigenous, and other people of color who speak up about racism are said to be creating conflict when they are just pulling back the curtain on the trauma and oppression they have endured for generations. And there are two important things to stress about unity in an anti-racist, anti-oppression reading of this passage from 1 Corinthians. First, to quote Dr. King, unity has never meant uniformity. We might take Paul's hope that there be no divisions among you as an excuse to aspire to commonality or to silence dissent, but he was speaking to a specific issue, to a matter of whom the early Christians ultimately were to follow. My siblings in the Moravian church hold up a phrase that I find useful in these conversations, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, love. Of course, there's some question of what counts as an essential or a non-essential. In my congregation, we've been working on embodying one small but meaningful form of unity without uniformity. After one of my colleagues taught the children at our church a series on the Lord's Prayer, she started raising questions about the language that we use for God in worship. We were already accustomed to avoiding exclusively masculine language for God, but that our Father lingered. And even in a progressive church where we make efforts not to overly gender God, our children were demonstrating very early on a conception of God as a man. We eventually started shifting how we pray the Lord's Prayer, adapting the gendered language at the beginning, offering up alternatives to the monarchical kingdom, swapping out King Jamesy these and thous for yous and yours. And there are good arguments for and against some of the changes we've made. We're exploring those now in an adult Sunday school series. And what we want to stress to our folks is that we aren't demanding that everyone worshiping with us change how they say the Lord's Prayer. We're expanding our vocabulary and therefore our imagination about God. We tell folks they're welcome to continue praying in the traditional language they're familiar with, even as our worship leaders use different words. But my colleague noted something important, that even as we pray the prayer differently, it is important that we agree on the reason for being more intentional about our language. That reason being to form our children for a less patriarchal, more inclusive faith. There are countless examples out there of ways that faith communities can embody unity without demanding uniformity, including in matters of justice, though it does get stickier when considering race, gender, sexuality, colonization, and more. We may be tempted to make Jesus an umbrella covering our varied opinions and practices on on such matters, But the second thing I want to stress about unity in an anti-racist, anti-oppression reading of this passage is that unity requires transformation, particularly on the part of the privileged and on the part of the oppressor. And this is where I want to connect in with the gospel text for this week. It comes from Matthew chapter 4, and I'm going to focus on verses 18 through 22. As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. 
Now, two observations. One, following Jesus isn't something you do by way of cognitive assent. It is an action. And two, these disciples, like anyone who follows Jesus, they must leave something in order to do so. Anytime I talk with Christians, white Christians especially, about unity without uniformity, I keep at front of mind this incisive quote from James Baldwin. We can disagree and still love each other unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and denial of my humanity and right to exist. My denomination has for too long attempted to disagree and still love each other without paying attention to the fact that the disagreement and love is mostly shared among straight cisgender people, leaving the queer and trans folks whose humanity we're disagreeing on out to dry. White folks in America too often find ourselves wanting to disagree about race relations and still love each other, failing to notice that the disagreement and love is a ritual practiced within white communities for which we have made black and brown people the sacrificial lambs. Now, I could go on and on with examples of how this dynamic shows up. It runs rampant anywhere power is inequitably distributed, anywhere people are stratified by privilege and marginalization. But in order for true unity in Christ to exist, some nets must be dropped. Some boats must be left on the shore. My people, the Methodists, love to quote John Wesley saying, Though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike. But often our bar for love is abysmally low. Love is not a sentiment, it is an action. And it is deeply linked to justice. To quote Dr. Cornell West, justice is what love looks like in public. In the wake of the 2020 Black Lives Matter uprisings, calls for unity rang hollow as it became clear that they were aimed at silencing dissent and consolidating power. In June of that tumultuous year, Black author Austin Channing Brown tweeted, I am wholly uninterested in conversations about unity that aren't rooted in the unrelenting pursuit of justice. Paul, in this letter, prays that the people of Corinth would be perfectly united. And too often, we, like Prathia Hall's ordination committee, want to table the question of justice in the interest of unity. We fail to see that this is precisely what we should be united around, the unrelenting pursuit of justice. The building up of the kingdom of God here and now, the ongoing work of transformation that requires us to drop our nets leave our boats, and work together to get honest about the divisions that exist, and then to bring active love and real liberation into our communities. May we be foolish enough to believe that we can be perfectly united in the kingdom of God as it breaks through today and as we wait and pray and work together for its coming in full. For a call to action this week, pray about and commit to taking action on one net you need to drop, one boat you need to leave on the shore in order to move further along on the journey of transformation that will allow you to be united with others in the pursuit of justice. What fragility continues to undermine you in your racial justice work? 
what habits or practices might you need to shed in order to be more fully in solidarity with marginalized groups? What internalized stigma do you still carry with the potential for it to be weaponized against others? Take a moment to write down something you need to let go of in order to go deeper in this work. And know that while the act of writing it down may be helpful, depending on what it is, it will probably take a long time, maybe even the rest of your life, to repeatedly, even continually, drop that net and leave that boat. If you're committed to getting white folks on board for dismantling white supremacy, please make a donation to Surge. We split every donation with a movement partner doing great work. You can donate online at bit.ly slash surgesf or find our podcast page at surge.org. We'll share the link on social media too. Thanks for helping support this podcast and organizing white people to show up for racial justice and the new world we're building together. Thanks as always for joining us. We'd love to hear from you all and especially folks of color and non-Christian folks by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages or filling out the survey on our podcast page at surge.org. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you check out our podcast. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org, where you can sign up for Surge Faith updates and find transcripts for every episode, which include references, references, resources, and action links. And of course, deep gratitude to our sound editor, Claire Hitchens. Yeah.